fourth and final chapter in the, <laughs> not actually the final chapter, <laughs> but the final class in the distortions of mind. Uh, and it's been kind of a fun class as I look at my own distortions of mind to be able to talk about them. Uh, and we, just for review, we started um, talking about the controlling mind and that access of, or that um, posture in which uh, our attempt to keep things at bay, to keep things rigid and predictable, to make life assured in a way that fundamentally it is not. And if we listen to these classes as ways to shield ourselves from information, from the whole array of information, begins to make sense to us. And when you're controlling, you know, the, that rigid inflexibility, that unwillingness to compromise, uh, to bend, uh, is a kind of, of rigidity that keeps information at bay. It keeps the situation, it keeps the situation very known, but it keeps the unknown at bay. And when we develop that kind of rigidity and controlling, we become very isolationist. We become very isolated. And uh, so the class on isolationism was very much that sense of how we, um, in our need to control and keep things very predictable, how we really become a, a sort of a, a self-amplifying machine. That is, if you put two mirrors uh, to reflect the image. All it is is the image being reflected back and forth. However, if it were just that, it would be okay because nothing would be bolstered from those images moving back and forth between the mirrors. But we have an amplifier in between and the mirror images don't just go back and forth but they get amplified in intensity through that isolationism. When there's no outside input, when there's no willingness to um, put ourselves out for other sources of information, we, our minds generate that kind of overblown significance to an event. And that was the talk on uh, being isolated, the isolated mind. And then once we become isolated and controlling, obsession is just the next step. <laughs> it's an extenuation, really, of the controlling mind in which uh, we just get caught up in the real or the carousel of the thoughts as they go round and around spinning forever out of control. And why do they spin out of control? Well, that's tonight's talk. The moody mind. <laughs> Again, think of the moody mind as one that has a predisposition towards thinking about things in a certain way. You know when we're caught up in moods, it's like a screen that we have up in the field of our attention. And certain things just can't, we just won't allow certain things to access. We assume the world to be a certain way through our mood. The mood predetermines that almost. And so again, in the moody mind there is a limitation to the access of information. We're beginning to see that it's the willingness to open ourselves up to the information and in a broad, and I don't just, I don't mean turning on the news, 
And I don't mean, you know, just listening to other people's thoughts. I mean the array of sense data, the actual what's occurring, the actual senses, the experience of what's occurring, rather than our interpretation of the event. And when we open ourselves up to that array of information, then we can start to see clearly how these different disposed ways of looking at the world are very limiting and very isolating. So let me just uh, spend just a little bit talking about moods. Uh, but uh, I want to differentiate between an emotion and a mood. It's my own, I, for those psychologists out there, it's very inexact. <laughs> but it seems to me that we have a lot of emotions throughout the day that will feel irrit irritated or sad or whatever, happy or whatever, uh, periodically as events come and go. And there, but there may be a more substantial quality in us of a mood, a kind of way of seeing the world. Some of us have a predisposition towards sadness or loneliness. Uh, I was with a friend, uh, and I've known him for years and years. He's a very um, long-term Dharma student. Uh, but uh, what has really been driving his life uh, that ever since I've known him is his loneliness. And even though with years of Dharma practice he hasn't been able or perhaps willing to look at the loneliness as a cause for his perpetual disappointment of life. And so we just, it's the mood, the mood can be so uh, seductive, it can be so um, uh, quietly there that we just assume uh, that it's us, that it's the way life is, and we're just looking out from that perspective. Now, um, some moods and emotions have a secondary emotion associated with them. For instance, many of us have had a history of anger in which anger has not been okay, either historically with the actions that have come to me through other people's anger or how I've acted in, within my own anger. And so there can be a fear associated with the arising of anger. So there's a secondary, there's often a secondary feeling, emotion, that's associated with some of our moods or other emotions as they arise. And unless we're very, very quiet inside, we don't see that. We don't see that. We, it really, um, it, when you become um, a meditation student, understanding our relationships to our emotions is really backing ourselves up so that the secondary emotion, the way we're relating to this emotion, begins to be seen. And is very important, extremely important, and understanding how it is that we're going to work with our anger if we're not seeing the fear response that we have to it. We can't do it. We'll try to avoid it because the fear won't be seen as the driving motivator we will do everything we can to get rid of our anger, to change it, to avoid it. 
because the fear is acting through us in relationship to it. Now put your own emotion there. Loneliness, sorrow, depression. Many people who have had a history of depression are afraid of depression arising again. They don't see the fear, but they see the depression. And so the fear is actually driving them much more than the depression is. And so the, we have to back up a step further in, in subtlety and pick up whatever that secondary emotion is because it charges, it establishes our relationship to that other one. It's helpful to remember that both emotions and moods are verbs, not nouns. They are not states of mind in the sense that a state is a static thing. They are verbs. They're in movement. And therefore, by the very fact that they are in movement, they are unable to define us. If they are static, if they are stationary, if they are permanent, then we could legitimately say, I am an angry person. But we cannot make that statement because they are not static. They are movements. They are energies that just move through us. And in fact, until we see emotions as verbs, and in fact, let me just expand the tapestry and say that all of life is a verb. All of life is a verb. But in particular, until we really see that our emotions are verbs and not nouns, we're stuck. We're stuck. Because access to emptiness in its most um, subtle depth is in really partaking and seeing the impermanence of those qualities and states of mind. Or just, I mean, you know, it's like a, a kaleidoscope turning the wheel of just, just falling pieces. And inherent in the fact that they're impermanent is the inherence of emptiness itself. They don't solidify around anything. They aren't established as something. And until we see that, we take emotions to be us. And so we're caught. So you really can't see or understand the truth of an emotion or a mood until you've seen it for what it is. Until then, it's just a, a kind of a subtle battle or a waging of a subtle fight, struggle that we have with it. So it's very interesting to begin to see how emotions uh, feed a particular um, pattern or an event. So it's a little bit difficult to t speak about, um, but as events arise, we usually have a feeling tone associated with them, and in fact, we have 
a kind of a disposition towards new events as they arrive based upon our previous viewing tone for similar events. In other words, when we touch a sense door, when we feel something, we don't just stop with, the, with what is there, we also have an impression on how it feels to us, what the feeling is about it. Even our past has a life of its own. It isn't just what we have touched, it's what we have felt about what we have touched. Right? There's a history of the emotions alongside the history of the memory of an event. So a memory has associated with it the feeling, the emotion or expression of that memory as well. And it's often that emotional expression that makes the memory the most more biting, the more caustic or the more satisfying. So what we touch or what we sense or what we smell leaves an emotional trace within us. And this is important because over time, even as new events arise in our field of consciousness, we begin to place that old feeling tone upon the new events. Like we'll say, you know, I don't know how I can get along with you, you look too much like my mother. And we will assume then that because somebody looks like and has the feeling tone of a memory associated with my mother, father, or whomever, that we'll just behave like that with them. And we do that, uh, we lose the sense of that thing being in and of itself new. And it's often through the emotional coloration of that event. And our emotions and thinking are so intertwined. It's hard to separate the two. You really can't, as a matter of fact. And we do it artificially in the instructions of the meditation. We say, okay, now we're going to just be with the state of mind of being uh, emotive, whatever that emotion is, being pleasant or unpleasant, and let the content go. But it can't happen because the emotion itself is governed by our thoughts about it. And so an emotion arises, and over time, if that emotion has come up uh, consistently over the course of days, then a mood is established. If I have been frightened as a young child over a number of period of days or weeks or months, I may, although the events change and I'm no longer in that same uh, untrusting situation, perhaps abuse or whatever, still the emotional tone over life has been uh, colored. And so now, even though the events have changed and I'm no longer threatened in the same way, the mood of, of untrusting, of, dis, of, 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 of distrust continues. And I look up out upon life with that mood and that perspective of mistrust. And so the mistrust becomes my interpretation, my perception, my vantage point from which I look at life. Even though the events have changed, even though those initial events which cause that mistrust are no longer there. And the problem is that when we see from that, we actually perceive mistrust. It's like when you're desiring, you see what you desire. When you're mistrusting, you see mistrust in the world which just reinforces that sense of mistrust. 
When you're lonely, you see isolated people. You see the sadness of life. Because we're disposed to that, which just reinforces that perspective, that mood of loneliness. Or for anger, we just see hostility or reasons to be angry. Or self-righteous moralism, the wrongs of life. And when we just look out from life that way, it just keeps reinforcing again and again that mood. Pretty soon the mood becomes our perspective, our stance, how it is that we look upon life. It can be angst. People don't realize. They wake up and all of a sudden they, they just feel angry or they feel afraid or feel frightened. And they don't know how they got there because there was nothing in the course of yesterday or the day before but they just look upon life with that kind of fear. The mind has an enormous ability to generalize out, to go from the specific, specific to the general. You know, perhaps it was a, a male who did something to us once. And so then we just generalize out to all people of that built, who are built like that male, or perhaps to all males or perhaps to all authority figures. I get a lot of that in, in teaching. The Vipassana seems to bring people who are kind of, um, who have authority issues. <laughs> because it's, it's probably the least authoritative teaching that you'll find uh, in, in the spiritual tradition. But that doesn't stop people from projecting. <laughs> and it's, I mean, so you, you can, and some of, some of them you can work with. Sometimes you can work with people who come with that preset disposition. And sometimes you can't. And because it's such, you, could, you see such a roadblock. It's such a, it's such a, um, a boulder in the path that you have to say, and let me say to those of you as well, you know, I'm not the right teacher for some of you. If you feel that kind of roadblock of whatever, and we can't dialogue about it so that you can, or I can see that as something that we can work with, then we, you need to seek a new teaching format, a new way to look at it, because we're stuck here. And just to admit that and, and move on. Now, uh, I'd like to talk about um, how moods arise. Uh, and I'd like to uh, say something about um, the Buddha's uh, dependent arising, because it's very important to understand dependent arising, especially in terms of moods and emotions. We take such responsibility. We take such, uh, we think that, you know, in our controlling way, we believe that these emotions are because of me. I did them to myself. And there's often a sense of self-blame when emotions arise. Um, or we go the other way and we hold events responsible for what it is that I feel. Uh, and it's important to understand, I think, that dependent arising in Buddhism is not uh, cause and effect. It's not saying this led to this. It's saying that the environment, the conditions were present for this to arise. You see? It's a little bit uh, like 
um, explaining why, uh, explaining the conditions of a snowstorm. The temperature has to be a certain degree Fahrenheit. The, there has to be certain humidity in the air. Uh, it has to be a certain temperature and a certain humidity, a certain condition, weather conditions have to be there, high or low or something. And then there's snow. But you can't say that it was because of the temperature that it snowed, or caused just because of the humidity. It was the, all of the conditions arose together that created this snowstorm. Or if you're a writer, the reason the conditions that are present is, first of all, you have the skill to write, and then you also need the paper and the pencil. You need the right timing and all of those things, which all of those conditions coming together create the arising of a writer. Well, that's exactly what happens with emotions. It's not because a certain event occurred that I feel this way. It's because you, partly because the mind is in a certain perspective to receive events in a certain way, and not only to receive them in a certain way, but to interpret them in a certain way, and then a disposition towards a certain confrontation, say it's anger, once those events have arisen, and all of those conditions together lead to me being angry. And so you begin to see that our moods are just the configuration of the weather. It's like the snowstorm. Things have happened and occurred. And the more we practice it, the more those conditions are hardened within us, the readiness for that arising of anger to show itself. And again and again, as we repeat it over and over again, it comes back in full force. Often, what, why it comes to us, why it keeps coming back with such uh, con uh, persistence is because of our relationship to it, because of the fear we have of it, because of the uh, self-pronouncement we have of it. I like my anger. You like the feeling of being angry. Or perhaps it's the fear of feeling depressed. Now, it's harder to un it's, it's easier to understand that when you desire something, you're going to bring it towards you. It's harder to understand that when you're aversive to something, you also bring it towards you. You also bring it back. It's a little bit like a rubber band. No matter which way you stretch it, it snaps back at you. And so if you have a particular disposition or a particular way of looking at the moods that you go through in the course of a day or a week or a lifetime, and you have a resistance to them, you can be assured that you are creating the conditions for them to arise again. And so what do we do? What do we do? It's important to understand how events create or create a partial set of the conditions for a mood to arise, but they're not the only ones. We often lash out and say it was because of this or that that I'm feeling this, but that's not the only one. And so we, have a, we need a broader sense, a perspective, a broader perspective of what we are and why we're feeling what we're feeling. Now, some of us, I'm sure, have had the uh, experience of sitting in meditation and with nothing particularly occurring, no event, no 
coughing, sneezing yogi beside me, I come out of the meditation, I'm angry. Or I'm depressed. There's just a mood that has been released from this body and mind. Right? But we're not, we don't stop there. We look out and try to find something to blame the mood on. Oh, it's that person's white socks. can stand it when he wears white socks. See, the anger looks for a reason for it to be, to, uh, to be angry. That's the nature of it. So we're sitting there and uh, depressed, and uh, we'll figure out that, well, the reason I'm depressed is um, that uh, I, just, I didn't get up this morning like everyone else, and it'll throw me back on this whole sense of self-defeat, and that's the reason. You just look for an explanation for the mood. Rather than just letting the mood be for what it is. Sometimes it doesn't have an event that has caused it. Sometimes we wake up and we're just sad in the morning. It's not as if it has to be associated with an event. We don't have to look outward for an explanation. And Understanding dependent arising helps seeing that it's not just governed by events, that these things have their own lifespan, their own arising within a whole field of different stimuli and relationships. Another way that moods are generated is by the mind that just seeds on things. S-E-E-T-H-E, seeds. It not only seizes, but it just brews. And it takes like a, just a certain unpleasantness in life. We get, we get jolted or we're in a crowd and we just, and all of a sudden we just, I uh, can't stand this number of people. What, why don't they have smaller meditation groups? And they just... <laughs> And suddenly it's just, it's a, it builds its own steam, doesn't it? And the story comes out and it's just, it's, it's the mirror again, being amplified from reflection to reflection. It hasn't been a specific event, it's just been the mind that has cultivated and just, and exaggerated the significance of this little jostle we went through. This small unpleasantness of life. This insignificant occurrence. You know, I often watch uh, volunteers. I, I feel, um, I always felt this in hospice, and I feel it here as well. Volunteers are the backbone of enthusiasm for an organization. That the volunteer spirit is the, is the spirit of any nonprofit in its ideal form. But I ha- what I have to watch for is when a volunteer, through whatever um, predispositions they have, start overextending themselves. And because I know that at some point there's going to be resentment. It's going to backfire. And the same energy that was so productive and so enlightening can come back in as resentment, as bitterness, as cynicism, and can actually cause a kind of a destructive pattern as well. And this can be not just for, it can be for anyone who's volunteering, from the board down to anyone. 
And we just have to, I just have, I'm very, very sensitive to any sense of resentment that builds. Because it means that that mirror is just reflecting itself back and forth. And no longer is the heart open in the same way it was when the volunteering position was presented. It becomes kind of a seething battle and struggle within ourselves. Just be aware that that can occur. To be aware of how a rather innocent activity can self-implode and create that kind of hostility, inward hostility. Just like that, the mind can catch it, you see. It's the lack of information. It's the lack of, of breadth of space. And to be able just to step back from it and to use it, as I've mentioned again and again and again, as a cue, as a flashing light. Okay, wait a second. I'm getting caught up in myself here. Let me bring in other... That's where we get caught up in judgment. It's a lack of information. People say, what do I do about my judging mind? Bring in more information. See, part of that information is not really understanding that the person who you're judging has a different side to them than the one you're judging them about. They're more complex. We're more complex than a single characteristic. So sitting down and speaking with that person or getting a different... more information... I uh, had a friend who was telling me this story, and uh, he went into his dentist's office, and he had gone to his dentist, same dentist, for several uh, appointments, and so he's sitting down, and he had, uh, the dentist had some time, he was doing x-rays or something, so he started uh, speaking to the guy, and uh, he started uh, saying how he uh, was being uh, pursued uh, by a, a gang of people and that he could tell and there was a window right in front of the office and he could tell who were members of that gang by a certain way that they dress or walk or something and he started to show my friend who was sitting in the chair <laughs> members of the gang who were walking by the office and my fr- and the, the guy has a drill right or <laughs> And he's going, oh my God, I mean, maybe he thinks I'm a member of this gang. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said, well, and, but, but he was an effective uh, dentist. He just had this mind state that was caught up in this particular inward struggle that wouldn't let go, wouldn't see, didn't allow new information to come in. He'd convinced him in this paranoid way, convinced himself, and you see how the mind just... You know, the mind just is a kind of a a dense perception. It doesn't have any space to it in that kind of thing. But none of these distortions of mind that we've been talking about over these four weeks have any space. That's the whole point, is to bring space in and to use these distortions as indicators that we need space that we need more information, that we need to broaden out, we need to look, we need to say, wait a minute, this is, I'm being trapped in here. We have the sanity to be able to use it 
as an indication that we need to do something else. Don't believe in it, is the message. Don't believe in any of these stories. Yet they're so convincing, aren't they? I mean, I know that those gang members are out there. I mean, I can see the way they walk. We have our whole evidence piled up. and But just not to believe it. Not to believe it. Don't let ourselves fall into that. Sometimes moods can become a way of control. I don't know about you, but I have a relative of mine who gets into moods and she controls the whole social engagement through her moods. And I can see myself, and I know better, doing things to try to bring her out of her mood so that we can have a good time. <laughs> but she's so locked in that particular mood, or can be, that it just, it's a controlling influence and everything, everything and everybody sort of works around her controlling mood, which is the epitome of being in charge, right? It could be the epitome of manipulation, although I think this is unconscious in this person. Still, how do our moods control people? And do we use them, do we use these moods as an attempt to control? Your sadness, grief, your anger. They can all be controlling influences. Just to be aware of that. The most important thing is to remember not to blame the moods on somebody, but to take full accountability for the mood and being within us <coughs> and being able to hold the mood just for what it is because it's in us. It hasn't been given to us by someone. It's in us. It's arisen within us, given certain conditions. And therefore, for me as a meditation student, I have to be willing to hold what arises within me. Not to blame it on something. Not to say, you make me angry. Not to say, you are the reason for my fear. If I get lost in that thinking, then I just get lost in the manipulation of the external in order to solve my internal uh, difficulties. If I'm angry at you, and you're making me angry, then all I have to do is to find an environment in which you're not present, and then I don't have to work with my anger. Fear, sadness. So the important thing is, first of all, to be able to own it. First we own it, then we see the emptiness of it. We don't see the emptiness before we own it. We hold it. We take responsibility for it. And through our willingness to hold it and not be um, in movement to it, not be swayed by it, not to be caught up in its energy, we can begin to see it for what it is. So I always say you have to know the value and the limitation of anything before you can be free from it. So what are the payoffs of a mood? What do we get from it? How is the mood serving us? Often, it's because we're so identified with that mood as being who we are that we're unwilling to give it up because we don't know what else will come in if we give up our sadness. So we go home and bathe ourselves in the melancholy of sad music, closing the drapes, lying on the couch, bathing ourselves in the quiet and the sadness, thinking, God, I hate my sadness. I just got to get out of this, off of this sadness. 
feeding it at the same time <laughs> we're doing that. Because we don't know who we are without being depressed or without being angry. And it, we'd rather face the assurance of our anger than the uncertainty of who we would be without it. Does it also, does it feed me? Does my mood feed me? Does it give me some kind of justification for why I'm alive? I mean, angry people often have kind of a sense of justification, a moral justification. You know, life is a battle and a struggle, and this is why they're alive. It gives them meaning to be angry. So to look at our moods and to see whether it's feeding us in a certain way that allows us to substantiate ourselves, not just to identify it as being who I am, but to be the very meaning for life itself. Does it allow me to control and influence other people? We're breaking ourselves down. You know, you're, we're taking apart the kit and we're looking at what the ingredients are here. And we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to step into the unknown and the uncertainty in order to do this kind of self-examination. Some of the ways of looking for the mood, looking at the mood is asking you yourself, is, is there a secondary emotion associated with this mood? Am I afraid of my anger? Am I angry at my fear? Am I impatient with my impatience? Is there a secondary relationship that keeps this mood from being accommodated, from being held, from being seen for just what it is? Does it keep me off balance when it arises within me? Am I aware of the mood, or does it just drive me all day long? You could do a three-month course, and I guarantee you, if you did, you could spend, and many, many people have done so, weeks relating from a mood and not even see it in the middle of a three-month course. In the most intense retreat setting that I know of and be completely uh, unaware that we are driven by, by mood. That's how immediate the identification of the mood is within us. These are not small things. These are huge, enormous problems of the mind when they're not seen in perspective, when they aren't seen for being what they are. So the most important question is, do you see the mood? Do you know that you're in the caught in a mood? Can I see it as an impersonal, as, as an impersonal changing process? Can I experience it? Can I just let it be what it is? Can I walk with it rather than relating from it? Can I just walk with it? If you're sad, just walk with the sadness. Just walk with it. Just walk through the day as sadness being part of the capsule you're in. Instead of relating from the sadness and reaffirming why it is that we're so sad. Or anger, just, just, just let it sit with you on your lap. You see? Then... When we do that, if we try to push away the emotion, it means we're afraid of it. 
So fear is governing our behavior, even as we are angry. If we just let it sit there, then we have neutralized whatever secondary emotion is behind it, and we're just willing to be in the midst of that. And then we're also open to other information that comes in, because it's not governing our behavior. It's not directing me by its energy. I can just walk with it. Try it. The homework uh, tonight is about this very thing. I don't know any one of us who can't use a good dose of awareness in our moods. You know, we're driven by them. They define who we are for the most part. And it's time to unwind that and to let ourselves free from that. 